0: This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hire to get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hire.com slash Ruby Snap is a hosted CI and continuous delivery that is simple and intuitive. Snap's deployment pipelines deliver fast feedback and can push healthy builds to multiple environments automatically or on demand. Snap integrates deeply with GitHub and has great support for different languages, data stores, and testing frameworks. Snap to pleasure your application to cloud services like Heroku, DigitalOcean, AWS, and many more. Try Snap for free. Sign up at snapci.com slash rubyrogues. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code RubyRogues, you'll get a $10 credit.
1: Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 233 of the Rudy Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Jessica Kerr. Care. Good morning. Coraline Ada MT. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. And we're going to start out talking about onboarding new developers. Coraline, you kind of brought this up. What kind of brought you into this when you think about it?
2: Well, I just started a new job. I'm working at CallFrench now, which is a company that makes software for automating a lot of workflow processes for doctors and nurses. So having just gone through an onboarding experience, um, i realized how critical it is that the onboarding experience be as positive and productive as possible. And I wanted to see if other people have some ideas on how to make that a more effective sort of thing and also talk about what some of the challenges are both from the person who's being onboarded, and as the engineer is the onboarding.
1: I can tell you how not to do it. I've been through that a few times. Yeah? Yeah. I had oh, a couple of concerts sorry. a year or so ago, and uh, they were... Basically, it was... That's the backlog. Go for it. Yeah. Well,
2: so starting out on bugs and features, there's yeah. no sort of context?
1: Right. You know, somebody spent a half hour walking me through the code, and then... Yeah. And, and the other thing was was... Everybody kind of does different parts of the system. So talk to somebody before you actually pick up a feature. So it wasn't even that I could just pick up a ticket and run with it or pick up a story and run with it. It was actually just...
3: Talk yeah. to all these people or one of these people that you don't know who it is and you barely met them?
1: Yeah, and make sure that they're not already working on it even though it says that it's available to be claimed in the backlog.
2: So do you think that was a reflection of the general culture of the engineering group when she sort of found your feedback?
1: Um, I don't think I ever did quite find my feet there. I kind of gave up on (laughs) the contract, but it was really rough because I couldn't actually contribute anywhere. I think I finished like three or four stories in like three or four weeks. So they weren't happy with me because I wasn't contributing, but I get halfway done with the story and then somebody would jump in and say, oh, I've already been working on that." Oh
3: yeah. I've been there too. Yeah. Or oh, no, I just rewrote all that code and didn't tell you and didn't even delete Uh yours so you didn't even know and you kept working on it for a week. There's an important point here, which is if you start on a new job or a new team and you don't feel productive and they don't think you're productive, that's not your fault. It's (laughs) pretty much never your fault because you're the new person and they're the ones with the information. And onboarding a new team member is the job of the team. You can't onboard yourself.
1: Yeah, don't want to absolve anyone of any blame if they don't try.
3: Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Otherwise, absolutely. I yeah. totally
1: agree with you. I think
2: there are some responsibilities you have as a new dad, and that is, but there are definitely things that the team can do to, to enable that. I think that you have a responsibility to ask questions when you don't mm-hmm. understand, even after yeah. this stuff. You know, you feel like you're asking really simple or really stupid questions. It's still your responsibility to get that information, but that has to be a collaborative and cooperative effort. Yeah. I agree.
3: Right, and if if you ever ask a question and then they make you feel stupid, well, that's that's like seriously defeating because it tells you not to ask questions, and if you can't ask questions, then you can't learn anything, and you certainly can't be productive.
2: Uh,
1: yeah. So,
2: in your experiences collectively, who have been the people who did the onboarding? Do you think it's important for it to be a senior engineer with a great sense of the entire system, or something that's distributed across the team, or Even, the system came to mind, a newer person who's gone through that same sort of experience of trying to learn what's potentially a complex system.
1: I think it really depends on the team and how they approach this. So I have worked on teams that were successful at onboarding because they essentially put you on the parts of the system that were easy to pick up. So there was some kind of crawler or bot or some self-contained part of the system that you know an adapter that you could write that you basically only had to understand the endpoints on one end and the endpoints on the other end and not necessarily have a total and complete understanding of the entire system and that gave you an understanding of at least one edge of the system and then they could bring you in after that and so in those cases the newer people could bring you on board because they could uh, introduce you to that part of the system a few other things though it Uh, that I've seen or that I've been around are places where you kind of have to understand the whole system, or at least understand the overall approach to the problem. And in those cases, you usually need a guide. I don't know if they need to be a senior person or not senior person or the newest person or whatever, but they at least need to know where some of the landmines are and know who to refer you to if you run into something and you have a question. So they can tell you where the answer is if they don't have it.
2: I think one of the things, too, is that a lot of people, you know, they have a lot of junior developers entering um, our companies now um, as a result of, like, boot camps and programs like that. And a lot of the work you do in a boot camp is being application development. And when you come into an actual company, an actual workforce, and see your first legacy app, that can be really overwhelming. And actually, we don't want monoliths anymore. We want generally service-oriented architectures, um, which I hate that term, but, Especially if you're presented with a dozen services, it can be really hard to know where to start to implement a feature and what sort of things, what sort of dependencies are between the applications. The minefield is multiplied in that case.
3: Yeah, one thing that's that's rough about services is the connections are there, the dependencies are there, but they're often not documented.
2: Yeah. Exactly. The documentation is something we have a lot of problems with in general. And I think especially the services we haven't figured out how to effectively document those. It's either really, really granular at the, you know, this this is the API call, and this is the inputs you expect, or else it's so broad that it's that you can't map it to individual services.
1: Yeah. I, Another thing I well, see is that you also get in where it's like, oh well, everybody knows.
3: Uh,
1: <laughs> that's the worst. Well, that's yeah. the one I hear against the documentation. And, and yeah, it, except you know, that everyone doesn't. Know. But everybody knows that until you get somebody new who doesn't. I mean, yeah,
3: and then they don't know what they don't know. They don't know what everybody knows, and they don't realize how contextual that knowledge is. And that's when it's really useful to have the new person like writing a wiki and onboarding the next person, mm-hmm. and and generally having that awareness or making training materials. So I joined Stripe four weeks ago, so I'm also onboarding still so, and. <laughs> Start has like 10 new employees a week. So the onboarding has gotten pretty professional and it's definitely evolving, but there's official people in charge of onboarding. So at the company level, there's a whole lot of sessions and informational dissemination opportunities that are outside the team. And then in the meantime, I have a spin-up buddy on my team who's um, working with me to get on board with the particular tasks the team is doing. Now, in this case, there's so many new employees coming on all the time that onboarding is clearly a first-class activity. It it just helps that it's that obvious because onboarding should always be a first-class activity. It's kind of like if you don't have deployment automation then any change is going to be painful and you're not going to make any changes and your software won't get good as quickly. It's the same thing your team can't grow and your team can't, grow can't get better quickly until uh, you prioritize onboarding and training.
2: I think um, maybe one of the challenges is that as developers, we tend to focus on the technical details and not recognize that software is essentially a people problem. And onboarding is one of those areas where that becomes really clear that it's more about getting the person comfortable, being the person, who contributor, and maybe less about the mechanics of the code.
3: Yesterday, I asked one of my teammates if I could just like sort of shadow her and just watch what she was doing and for a couple hours of her video chat. And she was like, yeah, sure. And then she was working on something. She's like, I actually have no idea how to do this task. <laughs> And I was like, cool, you know more than me. She's like, I'd probably not. But what she did know that I didn't was the company culture ways to find out how to do that task, where to post in Slack, where to look on our internal documentation sites, what readme's to read, and how to search all of our internal repos. So it wound up being incredibly more useful to me because instead of learning how to do one thing, I learned more about how to learn how to do all the things.
2: Slack, I think, presents some opportunities and also some challenges. At HealthFrench, we have 67 Slack channels and we're just an eight person engineering group and about a 30 person company. So it can be hard to figure out, you know, what's the appropriate venue for asking this question? Not just who the right people are, but like, where do you even start? Yeah, but Slack does have that you know, sort of equalizing effect, too, that in theory, if people are effectively using Slack, and I think that comes back too, whether really in that you're primarily my team or not, it does give you the opportunity to voice a question to a broader range of people who can potentially answer those questions.
3: Ooh, ooh, suggestion, suggestion. So it Stripe, one of our 400 and something channels is called Ask Anything, and that's a great place, I can always go there and ask where to ask.
1: Yeah, that's something that I found that was really helpful is just having at least a few people who were responsive enough to, yeah, take us to the right place and go in the right direction.
2: How do you think the onboarding experience can or should be different for remote employees versus on
1: site employees? That's really tricky, i found, especially if you have a team that is mostly all in one place and then you have a few remote people. If you're going to do that, you have to make remote the you know the remote communication channels the primary channels. Otherwise, you're just going to have somebody that's sitting out there in La La Land who isn't connected with the team. They're having conversations in the hallway. They have an impromptu meeting on the couches, and then three weeks later, you're going, "Why the heck are you doing that?" We all decided we were going to do something a little bit different, and then it turns out nobody told remote guy, and that really sucks.
2: I heard a story recently about a remote developer on a mainly in-person team, and his team lead made an offer in front of him on, on in one of the video hangouts that basically said, Slack, who said Slack? And that was incredibly alienating to the remote developer because that was literally her only way to communicate with the team. And to see it being dismissed by the team lead was really an um, indication that remote culture was not something that was valued at all. That's really um, sad. Yeah. And I think that you know, beyond the onboarding, if you're going to have a remote culture, you have to do away with those ad hoc meetings. You have to make sure that things are at the very least documented. If not, you know, always collaborated on via video chat or via Slack or whatever other channels are available to you. I think, I don't know, I almost wish that as part of onboarding, you could make a decision as to, is this really the company for me in a way that was you know, not impactful to your career. I wish there was a trial mm-hmm. period so that you could sort of fit each other out and say, is this person going to be a good contributor? And is this company actually going to support me in my development and data? Mm-hmm. So, I wonder if like a contract to hire thing for remote developers would be helpful so that both the company and the developer could test each other out. Mm-hmm.
3: There's another challenge with remote that, that I've noticed because I am remote. At a company that's mostly on-site, but my team, there's only one of us on-site, so we're practically all remote. So it's kind of a hybrid situation. But I've noticed that starting out remote, and we like don't have a lot of structure, it's very pick what's most important and work on that, and here's a bunch of information so that you can determine what's most important. I'm really struggling to get into the rhythm of what is it like to be remote at Stripe. So I've, I've, like, started asking people if I can shadow them and, like, see how they work. But I kind of feel like part of onboarding is getting into the socio-technical system that is the code plus the coders. that is us plus the code we work on. And when we respond to the code and change the code and it gets better and that's awesome. But coming in from outside, I'm not part of that yet. I guess the other side of it would be adopting a new technology. I love
2: that term yeah. socio technical system. I think that's really um, a valuable perspective and what you're expected to be part of as a developer.
3: Yeah, I got that from Michael Nagar. So yeah. I need to see the people who to ask to find the person the code, and I need to be able to ask both the code and the people questions. And But as I contribute, as I write code, or as I troubleshoot code, I'm becoming part of that system and I'm integrating myself. But until. So, I'm kind of like, don't stress out, Jess. Yes, you don't know what you're doing yet, and you don't know what to do next, but you're going to get there as I work my way into that system.
2: One interesting thing that I've seen done by several companies now is measuring the time to first commit to production or time to first support to production. And I'm interested in hearing people's thoughts on whether that's a viable metric and whether that's a viable objective to have a new home. I'll talk about Stripe again. <laughs>
3: <laughs> On our first, I think it was my second day, everybody, every engineer um, deploys to production and what they deploy is their little entry into the hard coded data that feeds, I think it's um about dot or the little public facing website that shows everything. Oh. Right? So we sort of push ourselves into production immediately. So we've technically done a uh,
2: deployed very early. That's empowering. I made my first production on my third day, Sesfero on Monday, and got third, actually before the production on so, which all that But um, I think that in some places it's kind of an artificial measure. Like, I don't know, what she described at Stripe justice, decides as not to be really critical, but a little bit contrived. Like, it's a milestone that you can say you hit, but it's a very iron value.
0: Okay. Still, should
2: a okay. measure actually be when are you adding value to your application then? But I think that might be like a me, an objective measure of what the onboarding process, how effective the onboarding process actually is. Like how quickly can you become productive given the circumstances that we put you in as a new And
3: um, Maybe if you measure value in a lot of different ways. That's true. Because there's a lot of different ways wonder Avdi if you have any opinions on whether there's a lot of things in common between onboarding onto a team and onboarding onto like a project maybe an open source project that people collaborate on that we want to continually bring people into.
4: Yes, both processes suck. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I mean, we talked about remote onboarding. Both processes, how are
4: full, both processes are full of those horrible tasks that everybody gets out of the way for the first time, thinks this is terrible, somebody should document it, and then immediately forgets about it because they've gotten over that at home and they have what do.
2: So, Jessica, I think you made an interesting point about onboarding onto an open source project. Um, one of the things that I try and do in my projects is go into the issues list. And add a tag for things that are beginner friendly, things that don't require a lot of context or a good working knowledge of how the overall system works. Um, things that you can, you know, contribute to right away and feel good about having made a contribution. I think, um, being beginner friendly in that way is one way you can make that experience better for new dads.
3: Yeah. As a team member, don't pick up those tasks without asking the new devs whether they're already working on it.
2: Yeah, I think um, what I ask for in my open source projects is for people to claim the ticket, just add a comment that says, I'm working on this. And then I have, you know, then we're not duplicating effort. I've had situations where two people work in the feature, and I had to pick between four of us. And it's not a fun position to be in. And it's not fun to be under the seating under that either where you put work into it, and then you find out that, you know, someone else did it already, or someone else leaked, even at the same time, and your work was basically for nothing.
1: Yeah, that sucks.
2: That can be really discouraging. Can you talked about that same situation happening in the workplace stress bed. Is that something that you've actually experienced?
3: Oh, well, Chuck was talking about having
1: uh, okay, I'll try.
3: stress on the list, and and I And I have also experienced that with like team members who are more interested in plowing ahead than in collaborating with me.
2: I really am. I'm coming around to the opinion that collaboration is an essential skill for you to have mastered before you can call yourself a senior debt. I don't think we focus enough on the social aspects of coding and we have, we need to adjust our expectations of what it means to be senior. You should be a mentor. You should be able to talk to people. You should be able to train new people. You should be empathetic. You should be collaborative. Those are are essential skills for being the sort of resource of the organization that comes along with being a senior dad. It's not about your coding experience, your architecture skills in isolation. It's got to be how effective you are as a member and a leader of a team.
3: That's beautiful. I think we should write that up so I can tweet it because I, I can't agree enough.
2: Uh, my, um, my last job, we did a lot of thinking about what it means to be a senior dad. And unfortunately, we had a lot of disagreements about what that meant, especially being a senior dad who was remote and not adjusting the expectations for similar relationships you can form with people um, in a larger organization when you are remote. Hmm.
3: Here's an interesting point. A lot of orgs are moving toward multiple tracks of advancement. You've got the management track and the individual contributor track. But I think I think you bring up a point that what a lot of people think of as individual contributor is code, but there's somewhere in between that is not management, but it is technical leadership and involves bringing the rest of the team up and, and being that communication hub. And collaborating and hooking people together and being really good at communication, as opposed to just writing good software on your own when you have a project that you can just ignore everybody relatively, it's degrees. So when we call the track individual contributor,
1: what? Wow, I, I think <laughs> wow, we're really missing something. <laughs> So I, can, I can jump in here a little bit because uh, and, and David and I talked about this a few weeks ago on this show um, where one of the first things I did when I was onboarded at crimereports.com was set up the CI machine. So that wasn't code. It didn't show up in the repo. All it did was give us another way of kind of getting feedback from our code so that we could evaluate where we were at. You know, a lot of times somebody's really good at asking the critical questions. Somebody's really good at you know, facilitating communications, Slack, or in person, or somewhere else. You know, yeah, there are a lot of unmeasurable things that make you an individual contributor that don't necessarily show up as lines of code or stories. Uh, because flawless, most of because our contribution
3: is collaborative. Yeah. yeah, and and Corlin brought up value, and if you chase value in terms of shipped business features, um, I, I think you miss a lot of that because really we've got to evaluate value at a team level. So maybe it should be more like when you bring a new person on board, you're, you're investing resources in that person. Team velocity, if you want, uh, the team value level is going to decrease for a while. And then at some point, it's going to go back up again. Maybe that's the, the point that we should aim to identify.
1: Yeah, I think this is where retrospectives are really highly valuable. Because then you can start to evaluate, we're going to try this, we're going to try that, we're going to try something else you know, this is working, this isn't working, this really isn't working.
3: Right, and that continuous integration that you set up is boosting the whole team, even though you don't show up on any commits.
2: I think you bring up a valuable point, Jessica, in that how we define adding value is a reflection of the company culture. And I would love to see topics like that addressed even before onboarding through the interview process by saying, you know, here are expectations for someone in this particular role. Here are the things that we value. So make sure that everything you do is in line with those values. Because I really strongly feel, you no, know, everyone knows that kind of the things that that about company culture. If you're not able to express your values, people can't live those values. And you have no culture if you're not living those values. So I think communicating those values, and I don't mean a mission statement. I don't mean an objective that some has written up, but communicating those and showing someone the way to act according to those principles should be a critical part of onboarding as well. I think it's just as important as understanding where in the code base you, know, you should make a change.
3: Absolutely. And if you think those values, that you shouldn't have to express them, that people should just pick them up, well, great. Your, should com- your computer should just know what to do and you shouldn't have to tell <laughs> them in code.
1: I've been waiting for that headband I put in my head, and I can just think and imagine.
2: I never had one. It's (laughs) actually
1: I Haven't gotten one yet. I want one.
3: Yeah, but we have that. That's that's yes, that's a good thing. We we wish we had a headband to um, just hook up to our heads and tell the computer how to work. But we think we have that with people.
1: (laughs) That's so true. That's so true. That's
2: hard to communicate with computers, and we can't figure out communicate with people.
1: Yeah. I, I think one other thing that we fail to recognize a lot, and I think this shows up in a lot of the other areas that you know we struggle in in kind of the social justice areas of of our community is that we assume that we can kind of quantify somebody as one thing, and this happens with new people on the team, for example, so they're the noob, so we just bring everybody in the same way and handle them the same way. And it just doesn't quite work that way. I mean, everybody is going to pick different things up. They're going to learn different things, different ways. They're going to contribute in different ways. And it's, it's the same thing with, you know, bringing people into the community and bringing people into these other areas that we work in and socialize in as coders. and me bringing somebody on who's a lot like me and me bringing somebody on who's a lot not like me. Those might need to be two different processes or I need to be mindful of how I want them to contribute because they have a different skill set or a different personality.
2: I think um, that touches on something pretty important, Chuck, and that is especially if you're in a new process or your company is trying to focus on bringing in diverse candidates. Um, one of the ways you can set someone at ease with, you know, whether they're a different race or religion or gender or the have you than you are is showing them role models who look more like them and who are more in common with them. So I think adjusting the onboarding process to, like Jessica, you talked about having a spin-up buddy. So if you are, for example, a person of color coming into a company, I think it might be important for you to see other people of color being affected in the organization and someone that you can talk to in Missouri with and get some reassurance from so that you don't feel all alone, so your difference doesn't make you feel other.
3: Yeah, yeah. And so, like, I mean, even though my spin-up buddy isn't a woman, he set up a bunch of meetings for me with different people in the organization that I should, like, know. So while I was on site, I had, do you call it a coffee, but really it, it just means the talking part is important, the coffee part is optional. With various people, and many of those were women.
2: I, um, I heard of one company that actually, um, for the person's first week on site, set up a uh, women's launch for her to attend just to get to know a cross-section of people at the company and also to not feel alone as a rare woman in tech.
1: Yeah, I think also, though, it's important just to note that if you sit down and talk to somebody, you can immediately figure out, hey, you are bent this way. You feel important when you contribute this way. You like to jump into problems in this manner. And that's not the way I work or the way I think, but then I can actually say, then I feel like if you jump in and contribute over here or you contribute in this way and play to some of the strengths that you have demonstrated you have, then you can feel like you belong.
3: Chuck, I think you would make it a good senior developer. I think you illustrate a lot of those characteristics that you mentioned earlier.
1: I- I'm not sure what you mean by that.
3: I'm saying that the way you're talking about, like, noticing how a person works, noticing where they contribute, noticing how they learn and how they react to different learning things, that's exactly the kind of characteristics that I want in a technical leader.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I've, I've done that before, and I've you know, i had that work out. I've, I've also made the mistake where I assumed that somebody was just like me and then had it blow up in my face because it turned out they really weren't.
3: Or just like somebody else who was different from you but they're they're in their own category. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think, Chuck, you mentioned something earlier about people not just falling into one category. One way to go with that is a person can be like really good at one thing and really bad in another way. And uh, people just, you know, just because you like somebody doesn't mean they're great in all situations. That's another thing that I've seen be problematic. It's not specific to onboarding in any way. Uh, but, in general, in organizations of uh, what do you mean that person was mean to you? They're nice, they must never be mean. you must be wrong
1: <laughs> that that just reminds me. My wife used to be a preschool teacher, and you know inevitably there'd be one kid that would pick up a real fuss periodically, and she'd have the parents come in and they'd be like, ah, "My Johnny would never do that
3: <laughs> you know, where everyone has this
1: perception that they're the nice guy or the nice girl or the bad guy or the you know the the mean person or whatever, and it's like that's not been my experience with them, but it's
3: kind of the reverse of fundamental attribution error of you get an opinion about what kind of person they are, and then you can't even see or believe yeah. behaviors that would contradict that opinion. Yep. Yeah. So that's tricky about onboarding too, is you get first impressions, you get Short experiences, and it's easy to like start putting people in categories and deciding they're not useful here or they belong over there when you really the team and the person are still exploring each other.
2: And I think you're, you're under so much pressure when you're new on the job, you may not be at your best because you maybe really stressed, maybe hyper focused on what people are thinking of you and trying to second guess. Values that they will uh, the attributes that they will value the most. So you're not necessarily really being yourself in that
1: circumstance. Yeah,
3: yes.
2: that's true. I, yeah, so I think
1: a lot of communication plays into that. I mean, you you have to be talking because I, I, otherwise you're gonna you are you're gonna make those mistakes. You're gonna make a poor judgment, and you know on the other side, yeah, you have to make people feel like you hired them to be them and not somebody else.
2: Um Do you think that Onboarding to benefit by reusing some of the time of the same people involved in the interview process. Because maybe they have a little bit more context about your background and where you're from, and they've seen some of your personality and some of your actions.
3: In an even more high pressure environment? <laughs>
2: that's but yeah, That's doing exactly. interviewing wrong, well, which is a whole other topic.
1: Yeah, I was well, going to say p- that all depends on how good your interview process is. It, you know, because you may not have even gotten the right information at the beginning. You mean the resume is not enough? <laughs> Only if it's really, really, really,
2: really long. I have a four-page resume with
3: pictures.
1: <laughs> <laughs> awesome. It's pretty awesome.
3: Yeah, actually, I kind of feel like I, I'm almost cheating when I come into a company now because not everybody, but some people there already know of me that's an advantage. I mean, people have a first impression of us as like Ruby rogues mm-hmm. before we arrive, and the, oh my god, that helps with the pressure.
2: I agree with that. I think that's something that I'm hesitant to talk about because I don't want to come off as you know, I'm bragging about it or whatever. But I definitely have met people who have a good sense of who I am based on. The visibility that I have in the community. But that also I, brings with it a lot of pressure.
3: Hmm.
2: We up to those expectations.
3: Yeah, there's I, that.
2: I, I, we have editing on the desks. Right? I've been always done some
3: yeah.
2: right. <laughs> <laughs> I can't yeah, edit he, myself on As road, much as
3: bragging is like calling out my own privilege. Because I'm like really lucky to be able to do this.
2: Oh, I feel the same way. Chuck, do you have some questions from people should we shipped over, or do you want to
1: suggest that? Well, So the first question, and we can actually tie this back to onboarding people, but uh, the first question is, uh, with all there is to learn in the field, languages, frameworks, workflows, methodologies, etc., how do you decide what you spend time learning?
3: Whatever's interesting to me.
1: <laughs> That's what I was going to say. If it's That's... fun...
2: That's what I do, and I tend to let projects guide the technologies that I choose. So, um, you know, if I'm working a project that is just mainly informational, that may not be stretching me technically, but I may have to beef up some CSS skills or what have you. But I think um, it's also valuable to learn, like get a sense of where your company is going with technology, and maybe engage in side projects that will bring you some familiarity with those.
1: Yeah. The other one that I picked is I know absolutely nothing about that. I go pick those things. Yeah.
3: yeah, there's there's a second category besides Wow, that's interesting. I want to check it out. Um, there's the category of uh, objective driven learning, which is like like coraline said. Okay, I really need to this CSS to do something that moves this. Picture out of the top left. That's about the level I'm working on in CSS. Mm -hmm. And when I hit those questions, I need to do some research, about half again, as much research as necessary. Just go a little deeper so you understand a bit more broadly the concepts you're dealing with. Get one level past the particular detail you need. Stuff like, okay, I managed to move it out of the bottom left and I did that with a style tag. And with that style tag, I could have done these other three things, kind of, level. Mm -hmm. And I'm not passionate about CSS, well, not in a positive sense, but it's useful. So that's driving me to do a little bit of research, but not so much that uh, I give myself a
1: headache. Yeah, for me, I mean, it really comes down to, is it interesting? Does it give me deeper knowledge in the things that I use every day? Or... Does it get me back to that beginner status, because I feel like having that beginner status kind of inspires some creativity for me.
3: do you had to chime in on this one?
1: He only learns enough to do bite-sized videos about Ruby at a time.
4: Yeah, that's it I, I feel like I have a few categories of things that I learn, so there's there's like number one, there's becoming adept at a few things, so you know I think it's really important to have a few technologies that you're just extraordinarily comfortable with. And so that, you know, when, when the time comes to, to tackle a problem, you're like, yeah, I know how to use, I have one tool, I know how to use it for this. You know, so, you know, for me, for, for years, that, that technology, one of those technologies has been Ruby, another of those technologies has been Emacs. You know, these are things that I, I try to get better at, because I want to have that one go-to thing that's that like, okay, I don't know all the tools that, that can solve this problem, but I, I know one that can. And I don't have to think about the solution too much. So there there are like those things. And then uh kind of like what Chuck was saying, I look for some things that I, I sincerely think will stretch uh, my thinking in some direction. You know, so like if you know Python or you know Ruby, it's it's not a huge stretch to learn the other. And I some people will probably argue with that, but um you know, it is a stretch to learn, you know, Haskell or something, uh That's or Prologue. You know, so you know i look at the for those things that that will stretch me i look for things that where there's not just some tool maturity but also some some knowledge maturity out there uh, you know there's there's an there are an infinite thing, number of things coming across my desk every morning but i try to look for technologies where i can learn something that won't be learn some some practices that won't be out of date tomorrow you know the very these days there are very few areas where i'm willing to learn something that's just like totally cutting edge uh because you know it's you know it's kind of like a generational garbage collector like 95% of the objects get wiped out in the first generation it's like they turned out to be short lived you know mm-hmm. and then you have that that 5% of objects that survives you know into the next generation and that 5% of objects that survive into the next generation are probably going to survive into the next five generations you know so there are very few things, unless it is directly pertinent to something I'm working on, or unless it just really catches my eye and just seems fascinating to me, there are very few things that I will allow myself to just read up on something that's, that's extremely new and untested. Um, there's a lot
3: of overhead to that, too, when yeah. you're the only place that your questions are answered are on the mailing list.
4: If they're, yeah.
3: Yeah. And you need blogs. and Yeah. When there's blogs, when there's tutorials, uh, when there's opinion pieces...
4: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like, you know, if I were working full time on a React-based website, you know, based front end, then I would probably be scarfing down all the, you know, the latest and greatest cutting-edge information I could about React. But since I'm not, you know, I'm not reading articles about it. I'm I'm just making sure that I'm aware that it, it exists and what it's good for. And, uh, you know, sort of broadly, I try to stay broadly aware of what's what's out there, what's available. Yeah, so those are kind of my categories. I mean there's the you know, there's the few things that I want to get really adept in. There are the things that that uh, stretch my brain, you know, and then like if if I'm working on something, that's about the only time that I'll I'll try to stay on the really on the bleeding edge. And I actually made I think I mentioned it on the show uh, a while back, but I actually took my list of my mental list of programming languages to learn and, and kind of brutally pared it down recently and made a list of of like, okay, here's here are the ones that I think uh, are actually going to uh, make a difference in my thinking and the rest, I'm not going to say that I'm going to learn someday. I'm just going to say I'm not going to learn them uh, unless a particular need comes up for it.
2: So, I actually I, I'm a moderator, an moderator on the Ruby IRC channel and something interesting happened yesterday where someone was asking about what modules in standard lib to study and they talked about the classes and modules that they had already studied. So they were making a very systematic survey of the Ruby language, I think, which brings, to, which brings up the question for me of like, how do you learn a new technology? How do you, um, I guess we're getting off topic a little bit here, but we do have a question out there in terms of coding. So be, how do you go about learning something new?
4: I think that the biggest piece is just um, writing things, you know, trying to Trying to write things in it and uh, finding out where I run up against a wall of, of misunderstanding, you know, and then trying to tackle that wall. I also do a lot of fairly systematic learning. I'm, I'm a huge proponent of finding a good book um, as opposed to trying to patch something together with blog posts and, and Stack Overflow articles and stuff like that. Uh, I really, really like stabilized information sources.
1: I mean, I'll chime in on this because the, the question was directed at me. saw a code reading with uh, James and I and David Brady. and we No, we never did make another one. I did an episode of the Read the Source podcast uh, with Eric Isaacson and um, Jamie Gaskins, and we talked about Clearwater.rb, which is a front-end framework written in Opal. But no, I haven't done much uh, public code reading since then. But, yeah, I mean, my approach to that is, you know, i check out the readme, uh, probably run the tests, and then jump in and see what I can make it do as far as figuring that stuff out. And then if I do go into reading, then, yeah, I'll just start at the top level, and usually I'll be looking for what it does that I want to learn how it does, And dig through it from there.
2: We could tie that back to our ongoing discussion, too, reading the code that is existing in the code base, making time for that. Mm-hmm. sort of um, systematic study might be a good way to sort of get your hands dirty in the architecture and really find the questions you need to ask.
3: Reading the existing code base is particularly satisfying when you're remote because no one can hear me <laughs> when <laughs> I'm first about how i you don't
2: get to WCS for you know. the
1: <laughs> All right, well, it looks like we're kind of uh, winding down on this. Should we do some picks? Sure. All right, I'm just gonna go left to right on my screen. Avdi, do you have some picks for us? Uh,
4: I don't think I got around to picking this one last time. Um, I, you know, when I, I I do a lot of traveling around and working from coffee shops and stuff like that, and I like my internets to be private when I do that. And for a while, I was using something a an anonymous uh, an anonymous VPN for that uh, called TorGuard. I think I probably picked it at some point, but I have had more and more trouble with TorGuard lately just having really bad connections. And so, uh, I don't know, like a month ago or something, I asked around, and pretty much the unanimous uh, suggestion was PIA, personal internet access. Private internet access, I think is what it stands for. So I I filled my TorGuard account, and I got an account with PIA, and and it's been working really, really well. Uh, So I I switched that on, on airplane Wi-Fi, or coffee shop Wi-Fi, or hotel Wi-Fi, to make sure that everything's Tunneled through a uh, a secure connection. That's pretty
2: rude. think um, I
4: I'm so mean. Wow. You know, really though, really though, I feel like I'm I'm I'm. It's tough love because I'm trying to make them better. Right. You know, if if you don't give them a challenge, then okay. they'll never learn nothing. So never get past the script
2: stage.
4: Yeah, yeah. And he likes the script pretty, Honestly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll pick one more thing. Um, I. I feel, like, uh, I feel like people are coming behind me. Now, I feel like um, I, I get like an hour every two weeks to play video games these days, but I still occasionally do, and one that I've been playing lately is called uh, Darkest Dungeon, and it's sort of a, a Lovecraftian-influenced dungeon hack sort of thing. Um, in many ways, it's a like a stripped-down dungeon ha- hack kind of game, but but they've also expanded it on some unusual axes. Particularly, there's a lot of you know it being Lovecraftian inspired. Uh, everybody is always sort of all of the people are always way underqualified for the job and at the point of you know stark terror and and uh, at you know near death for like most of the adventure. So it's it's kind of an exercise in like managing your characters' terror and stress and um, assorted emotional aff- afflictions, which is an interesting take on the genre. But I've been getting a kick out of that game lately, darkest Dungeon. And that's a real on Steam, uh, I, I got you. Yeah, that's on Steam. So there, yeah, there's two picks.
2: All right, Coraline, what are your picks? Okay, my first one is a gem that I actually am using right now. I'm implementing this at work. Um, it's called Imprint. It's a gem that was released by Living Social. Um, it helps you track requests across multiple log lines or even applications. Um, basically by inserting a transaction ID into your logs into all your log, log files, log entries. Um, there's a lightweight class in middleware, um, rack middleware, to help you set tracing IDs. And the Tracing IDs will appear in your app logs and help you relate calls that originate from a single request. And you can even insert that tracing ID that will pers- persist across API calls between applications. So that's pretty cool and that's really, really handy if you have Something like AppSumo or another, you know, another um, log analysis application can help you tie information together so you can understand um, exactly what happened when a given user made a given request. So that's my first pick. My second pick is an article in Research Digest, and the way Research Digest works is they survey research papers that are published behind paywalls and sort of give you a summary of what their research was about. And this one in particular was called The Surprising Truth about which personality traits do and don't correlate with computer programming skills. Now, there is a snappy title, but it summarizes the work of a researcher named Timo Naps, um, who published his findings in the Journal of Research and Personality. And what Naps did was scout the research literature looking for relevant studies that measured people's programming ability um, and measured their personality traits and intelligence and tried to correlate them. We found 19 studies between, published between 1974 and 2014 that involved a total of about 1,700 people, 27% of which women. And his research looks beyond intelligence to examine the role of things like introversion, conscientiousness, openness, disagreeableness, neuroticism, as they relate to developer aptitude. The um, results of the study that I don't want to give away, the person should read the article. But they are surprising if you think of people as resources and not surprising if you think about developers as human beings first. So I'll link to that in the show notes.
1: Wait, we count as human beings? Some of us. (laughs) Exactly. What kind of beings are we?
3: (laughs) Can each of us count as, as more than one human being?
2: My stuff contains
1: multitudes. Exactly. All right, Jessica, what are your picks?
3: Okay, I'm going to pick these headphones that I'm wearing right now. They are Talon wireless Bluetooth headset from Firebird. And uh, they just stay in my ears. And they're so comfortable. And I do not hate wearing them. And I can get up and close the window without dragging my laptop off the desk. Um, They're made for exercising, for like running. I even wore them biking, which was probably a bad idea, but they totally worked. Yeah, so the, the batteries only last about three hours, and then you like plug them into your USB port to charge, with like a micro USB. But they, they just work really well and smoothly, and I like them. And, um, you can buy them on Amazon if you want them. Second pick. There's one thing that I've particularly been enjoying lately, and it's a book, and it's the kids' book, like, They say ages eight to twelve or something, but it totally goes way younger. And my girls and I have been reading a chapter every night in this series and it's just delightful. It's called the Penderwicks. And it's a family of four sisters and their father their mother died when they were little. And they just go on vacation. Or they stay at home. And there's like no magic. There's no aliens. There's no zombies or vampires. It's just like ordinary people who are adorable and they're like little dramas that they, that it gets, and my kids get so excited and I love reading it at the end. (laughs)
2: I'm
1: going to double down on your pick of reading to your kids. That is honestly one of the best things that I do every evening. I absolutely love doing it. Uh, We've been reading the Chronicles of Narnia, which are fantastic books. And uh, we just finished The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe My kids are, you know, pestering me about which one's next and what's going to happen. Anyway, really fun. So, um, definitely going to second that. One other pick I have, and for a long time I really hated LinkedIn, but I'm going to pick LinkedIn just because I've been able to connect with a whole bunch of awesome people on there. Um, Did you finally figure out what it's for? It's for... (laughs) It's for... I, I don't have a great answer for that, other than that I have been able to connect with people on it. Um, Twitter is still more effective for me to connect with people. In fact, as we are speaking right now, uh, I have 109 direct messages I still have to read in Twitter, but uh, that's another tale for another day. But overall, I, I have been enjoying just, uh, you know, I, I actually, what I do is I go in and I randomly look up Rails people who are like second connections, and... uh just see what they're putting into their profile and what they've got going on. Um, I don't spend a ton of time doing this, but I do some time. And uh, it's just been nice because sometimes I'll see that I look at their profile and then they'll send me a message or something or want to connect. And then I get to actually you know interact with them and find out what uh, Rails developers are looking at these days. So you've seen that's
2: okay developer. Okay developer? So
1: sort of will developer. Oh, right. <laughs> I guess. Um but yeah, so I've made some friends, I've made some connections, and overall I've just really been enjoying the interactions that I've been getting from it. Um I've also been doing the same kind of thing on Twitter, so uh, that's why I have so many DMs. But it's been really nice just to connect. So if you want to connect with me on either of those platforms, then by all means uh, go ahead and do so. I'll put links in the show notes to those. Um I also want to quickly pick um I've I've started a morning routine and one of the things I do in the morning is watch uh, technical training videos for 20 minutes in the morning. And I have this huge backlog of two video series that I have been subscribed to forever, and I've been catching up on them. One of them is Ruby Tapas, by uh, will grim. I think I'm on episode 170 something. I'm not sure. I need to check. Uh, the other one is Elixir Sips by Josh Adams. And uh, both of those are awesome. And it's really interesting just to kind of have a comparison because I'm now to the point where they both come out on on a similar schedule. So I'll have one tapas and then one elixir-sips and then one tapas and one elixir-sips. And they're not covering the same topics, but the approaches are different and the, the way that the languages work are different. And so it's kind of fun to just kind of get this, okay, now you have to think about this in the functional style. And now you have to think about this in the, you know, if it's a procedural thing in Ruby, like uh I just watched uh, Testing Sleep, sleep call and, all that stuff, and there was some dependency injection that went on there um, with blocks to get the functionality for it to sleep versus count the number of times it slept and things like that. But anyway, um, so you know, seeing that in Ruby Topless and just seeing how the different things uh, work differently from each other and at the same time, some of the things that uh, Jose pulled into Elixir from Ruby and how those are similar and how they're different. So anyway, um, that's kind of my staying a beginner because I really am a beginner with Elixir, but it's keeping me fresh and keeping me excited about learning new stuff over there. So uh, long-winded picks, but those are my picks. So I guess we'll head toward wrapping up. Um, if you like the idea of us doing a Q&A, then tweet at us and let us know, and I'll see if we can get another one of these scheduled here in a month or so.
3: Chuck promises to send out the emails email <laughs> yeah.
1: The best way to be notified of that is either to follow Ruby Rogues on Twitter, at Ruby Ruggs, or you can join the mailing list. In the mailing list, you just get emails about uh, episodes. You get an email every week, basically. Um If there's something else going on, occasionally I send something out. But not very often at all. I probably once every three or four months. But yeah, if we're doing a Q&A, I'll send it out to that list to be sure. So uh, those are probably the best ways to know about it. And then we'll also announce it on Friday. We'll be
4: Ooh, if we're talking about mailing lists, can I plug mine again? Yes. So, yeah, episode, uh, or, uh, issue number four of my mailing, uh, my news- newsletter just went out. And, uh, it's everybody, everybody who's getting it really seems to like it. You know, I've been getting some really nice comments back. And what's better, I've been getting some great replies, uh, which is one of the big reasons that I started doing it, because I really wanted to have more, uh, one-to-one interaction with people at greater length than Twitter enables. Um, so it's very much a, a re- reply-enabled and encouraged kind of medium and I'm doing a lot of uh, sort of commentary on stuff there that I'm just not doing, uh, like on my blog and stuff like that, and and people seem to like it. So anyway, you can go to sigavdi.email to uh, sign up for that. Have been on a bike strictly for reality? I have, and yeah, a lot of it's influenced by the the, uh, software development and reality construction book that I'm still working my way through.
3: (laughs) Me too.
1: Awesome. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and stop the broadcast. Uh, thanks for everyone who watched live. If you didn't miss, I hope you enjoyed it. Catch week.
0: Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C A C H E F L Y dot com to learn more. Would you like to join the conversation with the rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlay.